listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. This week, we are discussing a potential escalation in tensions between China and the United States. Now, Keith, this was reported by Reuters in mid-September. What's happened? So what is happening is that President Biden is straying away from the official American script. So the Americans have had a policy of what is called strategic ambiguity. In other words, that the Chinese do not know how the Americans would behave if there were to be a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. That's strategic ambiguity, and that acts as a deterrent to them. However, President Biden now four times has said that America will come to Taiwan's assistance. Now, every time he makes that comment, White House staff try to back away from what he actually said. The president didn't actually mean to say it in those terms. And, of course, we've just had the 60-minute interview where he clearly reaffirmed his view on the need to defend Taiwan. Of course, on top of that, we've had American politicians visiting Taiwan as well. So it looks as though the United States under Biden and China are on a collision course over Taiwan. So to backtrack then, could you give us a bit of history around Taiwan and why there are tensions to begin with around this region? Yeah, so Taiwan is an island off the coast of China and it has a population of just under 25 million. I visited there a few times. It's a very modern country now. It was a fascist dictatorship. So what happened is that um, there was a civil war in China around the time of the Japanese invasion. So the communists and the nationalists came together to fight the Japanese while they were also fighting themselves. (laughs) Incredibly messy, ran on for decades. And in 1949, the communists took control of the mainland of China and Chiang Kai-shek took the remnants of that nationalist party, the Kuomintang, and fled to Taiwan. So Taiwan had actually been a Japanese colony for a few decades. And so he then set up base on... Taiwan, as I say, a fascist dictatorship to reply to the communist dictatorship, (laughs) which was on the the mainland under Chairman Mao Zedong. And the one thing they both agreed on is that there was only one China. Mm -hmm. So mainland China said that it spoke on behalf of Taiwan. Taiwan, this nation today of still only 26 million people, said that they also spoke on behalf of mainland China. Mm -hmm. And because the Americans were behind Taiwan, then it meant, therefore, that China, mainland China, was not able to enter the United Nations until the early 1970s. And the big breakthrough actually came from Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. They thought that if they were to improve relations with China, it would put pressure on the Soviet Union, which was another one of their enemies. This is Henry Kissinger at his most Machiavellian in terms of playing one off against the other. Mm. And it certainly worked. Yeah. And Richard Nixon, with his incredible anti-communist credentials, was able to visit mainland China in a way that a Democrat president like John Kennedy or uh, Lyndon Johnson could not do that. But no one could accuse uh, Nixon of being soft on communists. He got a career based on opposing <laughs> communists. So 
That was this incredible transformation that took place in the early 1970s. So the question is, what then about Taiwan? And the agreement was the Americans were not going to throw Taiwan under the bus. They would continue to have some sympathy for Taiwan, continue to supply military equipment, while at the same time, the American business community was saying, well, we've got to open up China, as was the Australian business community, you know, sell them food, etc. So I find fascinating is that Taiwan, in the fullness of time, followed a general law that we have in political science, if there is any law in political science, that as a society gets richer, it tends to become more democratic. So you had this fascist dictatorship on Taiwan, similarly in South Korea, later on Philippines, Indonesia, they're all democracies now. And so as a society becomes more middle class and the middle class are not worried about where their next meal is going to come from, it gives them more scope to be able to question how is this country being governed. It's almost, if you're into psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You get your basic needs sorted out, food, shelter, etc., and then you can work your way up that pyramid. So the dilemma for Americans has always been, well, China is the future for America in terms of just sheer trade, you know, one and a half billion people. But at the same time, there is this residual loyalty that you see in some parts of the American community for defending Taiwan. And the way to solve this has been strategic ambiguity, Mm -hmm. not letting the Chinese know one way or the other how the Americans were to behave. And so what has now changed is that President Biden four times has reaffirmed that America will go to the aid of Taiwan. I think actually we're at a turning point because the Americans are doing their calculations. They realize that they've got to have their war with China, get it over and done with as quickly as possible. The Chinese, by contrast, want to have another decade or so before going to war with America, perhaps never going to war. So the Chinese are not in a rush to have a a head-on collision. But the problem is President Biden is pumping them along a little (laughs) by by his remarks over Taiwan. So President Xi feels himself under pressure. Yeah. And with Joe Biden's comments, obviously it wasn't talking specifically about sanctions, but these reports out of Reuters have suggested that that's being considered, what would those look like if they were true? Well, if, if we're going to move down to the sanctions, we've got already, um, my guess is that the Americans would help to arm the Taiwanese. If you look at this remarkable war in, in Ukraine, mm. and you can imagine the Chinese are following it very closely, and that's a land invasion, which is always easier than a maritime invasion. So what well, the Americans have been so important for the Ukrainians has been intelligence, Remember, President Biden at the end of last year was predicting a Russian invasion of Ukraine. A lot of us were saying, no, it's not going to happen. We all got that wrong. Biden was right. He's got good intelligence. Right. So he could also, of course, help Taiwan get to understand more about what's going on in mainland China, as well as, of course, the supply of good quality American equipment. What would happen, you know, there are concerns this would be a risky move to take because of how entangled the West is with China in terms of the clothes and the the things that we buy from them, the technology, what could happen if the US did move ahead with these sanctions? Well, I think if you ended up with some sort of sanctions mechanism, it would be very disruptive. We in Australia are the canary in the mine. You know, mm-hmm. in the old days, you used to take a canary down to be an early warning system for whether or not there are explosive gases in the mine. 
people have followed very closely the way that China is trying to bully Australia in the last couple of years, and Australia has stood up to it. We've lost the red wine industry. The Chinese had a cold winter because they're unwilling to buy Australian coal, but my guess is that if it's another cold winter, (laughs) that they will be buying much more of the coal, and obviously they're still continuing to buy the iron. So it's interesting that, as you say, the economies of the world are now just so intertwined whether that's a good thing, of course, is now being reevaluated because the whole issue of long supply chains and whether we will be better off trying to manufacture more stuff here at home. Mm. But there is this risk of disruption with the trade. I might also say that yet another worry on this matter is that Taiwan is what's called the green silicon chip in the Pacific. And there is one Taiwanese company that is the world leader in making silicon chips. So if you were driving a car here today, my guess is that you're driving with Taiwanese silicon chips. Now, if mainland China, which already buys a lot of those silicon chips, were to invade Taiwan and there was a disruption to supply, then there'd be so much disruption generally around the world because we're just so reliant on this world-leading company, which is based in Taiwan. So the Chinese would do themselves a lot of damage, leaving aside now, the risk of a direct war with the United States, mm. they can't afford to live without these Taiwanese chips. The Chinese can build basic chips, but the really sophisticated stuff are made in Taiwan. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, war is almost inevitable between these two sides and China would be looking to delay as much as possible. Do you think that'd be enough to deter China from making any more moves and going, no, nah, okay, hands off Taiwan sort of thing? Well, President Xi's not going to make a statement like that Mm, ever. mm. You know, he has to continue to reaffirm his policy, which is the reunification of Taiwan. Ironically, just for the record, the communists have never controlled Taiwan. So remember, it was the Chinese Civil War which led to Chiang Kai-shek fleeing to this former Japanese colony. Mm. The Japanese, once they started their resurgence at the end of the 19th century, invaded Taiwan. So there is actually no record and no history of communism running actually Taiwan. So you've got to bear that in mind. That's yet another reason why many people on Taiwan are saying, let's not worry about this. We don't want to become part of mainland China. We're going very well in our own separate direction. So the problem for President Xi, though, is that he can't afford to say, yeah, Taiwan, I hear you. Mm, you know, no. <laughs> He's got a career in China based on wanting to reunite Mm -hmm. with the mainland. But he's also looking at the failure of Russia in Ukraine, the problem of trying to invade by sea, no doubt initially with some air support, but ultimately they're going to have to put Chinese troops ashore. Now, there's a huge number of Chinese that you could put ashore, but there are going to be immense problems for China. So it may well be that President Xi will be quite happy to keep reaffirming the old rhetoric without actually trying to implement it. Of course. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Thanks for your company. This week, we are delving deeper into reports of an escalation in tensions between China and the United States with fears of an impending invasion of Taiwan This week, you did send me an article by a man named Michael Pascoe in the New Daily discussing these reports. 
Now, he didn't seem to be a fan of this kind of approach, did he? Well, he's an economist and he's worried, as we all are, Mm. with the disruption of the global economy. He does not want a war to go on. War is not necessarily inevitable. You know, we go back to where we were a few weeks ago with Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, he was able to end the Cold War without a shot being fired, at least head on, between the Soviet Union and the United States. And I think a lot of us are hoping that in today's era, that in fact the tensions between America and China can find a way of being dissipated, that the two countries find a way of living together without having to go to war. Because we've seen with Ukraine the amount of damage that a modern war can do. Michael Pascoe also talked about Australia's stake in all this. We kind of touched on it briefly, but what's his assessment? Well, Australia um, is in a very concerning position in terms of China. We've got so many eggs in the China basket. And so our concern is that we would lose a valuable customer. The United States is our major military ally. China is our major trading partner. It's the first time that we've seen this distinction, really, between a country in the Western world as our major military ally, without it being our major trading partner. In the past, we've had the UK, United States, Japan, more recently. But now we've got China, which is not part of that Western trading group. It's not one of the Western-oriented countries. So it's a very dangerous situation for Australia. And as you say, we're wearing clothes made in China, mm-hmm. and a lot of the engineering stuff is coming from China. We can't afford for China and the United States to have a war. I wanted to ask you on that, say an invasion does happen, the US decides to ramp up sanctions. Obviously, it puts Australia in a bit of a difficult position. Do we have no choice but to follow suit? Well, that's the discussion that goes on behind closed doors in Canberra. So you can imagine Canberra is also following very closely Biden's comments as well. You've got one school of thought in Canberra, which says that America is our ally and we follow America wherever it goes, be it Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, even further back. So we have to support America in the hope that if we ever get into trouble, America will come to our aid. That's one school of thought. Mm -hmm. A second school of thought is to say economics is now more important than warfare and you've got to say who are our major trading partners and we've got to keep on good terms with those major trading partners. Now, this is a debate that is never reflected in the general public very much, certainly not by politicians. Remember, John Howard has said, we don't have to make a choice. Right. Well, of course, clearly we are. Yes. And increasingly, when you look at, say, this new defence agreement, AUKUS, which is Australia, UK and US, we are actually gearing up for a war against China. If you look at the world from a Chinese point of view, you see a number of countries around you that basically don't like you. The Japanese don't like you. I've got to say, for the atrocious Japanese behaviour. I have sympathy with China in terms of Japan. You've got South Korea. You've got a lot of the Asian countries that are very suspicious of China. You end up with anti-Chinese riots in a country like Indonesia. It's interesting, the Chinese who were targeted in those riots after the global crisis in the late 90s, they fled north into Malaysia. You could very easily imagine them fleeing south into Australia, but they decided to go north. So you've got all of those sort of dimensions there of anti-Chinese feeling. Some of those Chinese, of course, are clearly not communist, but they are Chinese. Yes. And that's your problem, that Mm. you've got people who just don't trust the Chinese. So the Chinese look out on the world and they feel themselves a little hemmed in. And now you've got Australia further away, US and now even UK, all ganging up against you as well. 
So for the launching of the AUKUS agreement, whatever that is, we still haven't seen the paperwork. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a mystery, isn't <laughs> A bit it? of a mystery. <laughs> Something <Is> about <laughs> submarines. <laughs> well, it is from the Australian point of view. Yeah. Um, what is interesting is that none of the three leaders, that was Biden, Boris Johnson from the UK and Scott Morrison, none of them actually mentioned China. Mm-hmm. And yet clearly China was the reason those three countries have come together. So from a Chinese point of view, you're beginning to feel paranoid. You know, the Americans are paranoid about China, but the Chinese also have grounds for thinking that they too could be paranoid when they look at how the locals are behaving towards China. What's to gain for either side? I guess for me, I struggle to understand, you know, you go you go back and you go back and you go back through all the history, but why would any side want to engage in war with the other? Well, this is what Graham Allison looked at in that book on what's called the Thucydides trap. So Thucydides is one of the parents of the history profession and looked at the rise of, of Athens and Sparta and how that triggered a war. And so Graham Allison is saying that it's almost a an inevitable force of history that you end up with a dominant country being challenged by a rising power. His book on the Thucydides trap looks at 500 years of Western history. So it starts off with Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, Britain, France, Germany. And in each case, you've got an established power being challenged by a rising power. It's almost this inevitable issue of history. You get people who are rich, being challenged by people who are getting richer and they end up on a collision course, not inevitably. So Graham Allison has looked at 16 examples of this trap. 12 resulted in a war. That's why we make a fuss of Mikhail Gorbachev. (laughs) He was one of the four that avoided the war. (laughs) So we see ourselves then almost locked into this inevitable historical development. So we're not learning from history. Yeah. This is the weird thing. We don't learn from history and we find ourselves almost on these inevitable paths. And that's the worry that we've now got with the United States over Taiwan. It's almost an inevitability that builds up. We see that back, for example, in 1914. There was just this feeling that inevitably there would be a war between Britain and Germany. What we were looking for was the flashpoint, which, of course, was the assassination in Sarajevo in June of 1914. So the flashpoint was not clear. But there was just simply this feeling that countries get on a collision course. And that's the worry so many of us have at the moment regarding the United States and China. And at the moment, the spark will be over Taiwan. And I guess to wrap us up, Keith, do you think we'll have to wait long to see where this goes next? Well, if you're an American, you'd want to get it over and done with pretty quickly. If you're Chinese, you'd look for ways of delaying the conflict until you get into a stronger position. My preference would be no conflict. Of course. (laughs) Always. Always trying to avoid (laughs) war. Because as we've seen with the tragedy in Ukraine, look at the amount of disruption that it causes to the world. It's not just an issue in Europe. We've now got global famine being exacerbated. Now, imagine what happens if we destroy the silicon chip industry in Taiwan. No more cars. How are we going to do broadcasting? We don't have, a, we don't have the chips for our electrical equipment. We won't be here anymore to do it. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen, Keith, so that we can keep putting out episodes of Global Truths. Thank you. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.